0: Anybody ready to get in the word? Amen. All right, Colossians chapter 4. We're going to look at what is the last word in this series. It's not necessarily the last word in Colossians. Paul ends the letter with a lengthy time of greeting uh, people. He'll greet some within the church there at Colossae, and he will deliver greetings from others who are in Rome with him as he's in a time of house arrest. But Basically, Paul concludes the teaching portion of his letter with these words that we're going to read this morning. And uh, this little paragraph has everything to do with kingdom communication, or as I'm calling it uh, today, walking and talking in the last days. And make no mistake, we are living in the last days. Uh, The last days is simply a biblical way of describing the period of time between the first coming of Christ at Bethlehem and the second coming of Christ on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. That period of time between the comings of Christ is what we call the last days. You say, well, Christians have been saying they've been living in the last days for hundreds of years. Right, and they've all been right to say that. Uh, So we are in the last days and we believe the time is growing short and we certainly believe Jesus is coming again. And because we believe that with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it ought to make a difference in the way we live or, as we're saying it this morning, in the way that we walk and in the way that we talk. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And Father, we pray that these short, terse, and yet very important words of the Apostle Paul um, would become our prayer and our motive. As we continue to live our lives waiting on the coming of Jesus Christ, we want to make the most of the time. To make the most of every opportunity to walk in wisdom. And toward that end, may your Spirit speak to us this morning that we might have wisdom to live in a way that brings honor and glory to our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and all God's family said, amen. Now, um, let me just begin by saying that there should be no doubt that one of the most important responsibilities of every disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is effective communication. Sometimes we think that the only people who ought to be effective communicators are the preachers and the teachers within the church. And while that's certainly true, um, it ought to be a uh, a milepost for all of us. We're all called to be effective communicators of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And think about all of the ways that believers communicate. We're called to preach the gospel. We're called to teach God's word. We're called as witnesses to share our faith uh, faith with others. We're all called to pray. All of these are ways that we effectively communicate one with another and disciple to disciple and disciple to God. And while we all won't be preachers and we all won't be teachers per se, we are all called to do two critically important things. We're called to witness to the lost and we're called to pray to God. That's true for everybody in this room who follows Jesus as a disciple. And this is indeed Paul's final charge to the church before he starts greeting all of these myriads of people. His final charge to the church at Colossae involves two critical tasks and two critical relationships. Continue steadfastly in prayer, and then he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Those are the two primary things he says in the paragraph we just read, continue steadfastly in prayer, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. One communication emphasis is directed up, if I could put it that way. One communication emphasis is directed out. Everybody following me? And that's true not just for gospel preachers, that's true for every disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's talk about those two effective means of communication this morning beginning first with the vertical dynamic. And uh, we'll state it this way to begin. In our relationship with God, Paul says, we must walk in prayer. Not occasionally pray, not in an emergency pray, though you should occasionally pray in, in an emergency pray, but in our walk with the Lord. Prayer ought to mark us as Different People in the world it ought to be something that characterizes our life in the Lord Jesus Christ regularly And so Paul ends his letter really the same way that he begins it with this urgent call to prayer If you remember back, I don't know how many weeks ago it's been But if you remember back the first thing that Paul does right out of the gate in Colossians chapter 1 is pray Right, he prays for the church and it's this spontaneous prayer of thanksgiving And here at the end of the letter, he comes right back around full circle with this incredible emphasis on how important prayer is as a manner of life. And then he makes a specific request for the church to pray for him in a particular kind of way. Now, I don't have to tell anybody, it's a whole lot easier to talk about prayer than to actually pray. I mean, we do a lot of talking about prayer in the church. Talk, talk, talk. And the fact of the matter is, particularly as a people, we do effectively very little praying together. And that's because it's easier to talk about it. It's easier to pick apart what the Bible says about it than to actually be effective in doing it. But here's the thing. If you want God to give you joy in the journey, if you want God to give you peace in the valley, if you want God to give you victory in the battle, as you engage in spiritual warfare practically every day of your life, then would you not agree, we better learn how to pray. Not just talk about prayer. We better not only learn how to do it, we need to learn how to walk in it. And toward that end, Paul gives us three very important dimensions of a faithful walk of prayer. Let me give them to you this morning. First, he teaches us that we ought to pray earnestly. And you know what I mean by earnest prayer? Some translations simply say be devoted to prayer. He says here in the English Standard Version, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful. The idea there is just this lifestyle of persistent, fervent prayer. It's prayer that's ongoing, prayer that will not give up, prayer that will not lose heart, even when life gets very burdensome and difficult. Remember when Jesus taught the parable of the persistent widow in the 18th chapter of Luke? Dr. Luke introduces it by saying Jesus told his disciples a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and never lose heart. And that's what the idea is here. Paul says the same thing when he writes the Thessalonians in chapter 5 when he says pray without what? Pray without ceasing. In other words, it's just a lifestyle of ongoing continual prayer. And that's basically what he's telling the Colossians to do here in chapter 4. It just doesn't get as much press as First Thessalonians 5 does. But he's saying the same thing. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful. Now, here's the thing. What does that mean? Because you know as well as I do, you can't be on your knees 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, sweating drops of blood in this kind of earnest prayer. Though you should be on your knees at least a part of every day, you can't do it around the clock, but what you can have is a continual attitude of prayer where you're never, ever that far away from God. I mean, you're just walking with the Lord. The Lord's on your mind virtually every moment of every day. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great British preacher, said one time, there's not been 15 minutes of my adult life that I have not been in constant communion with God. Boom. Boy, I wish I could make that statement. But you can. The whole idea is as you walk, as you go, as you work, be mindful of the Lord and be in this continual attitude of a relational dynamic with God where your conversation with God doesn't just happen in a 10 or a 15 or a 20-minute block at 7 o'clock every morning, though it certainly can involve that. But converse with God ongoing throughout the day as stuff happens, as you think of things, as you think of people. You're just having this ongoing dialogue, this ongoing continual uh, conversation with the Lord. That's what it means to continue steadfastly in prayer, to pray without ceasing. Now, there's another modifier that Paul uses here, being watchful. He says believers ought to do two things with respect to their prayer life. Be steadfast in your prayer, but as you pray, also be watchful. Watchful for what? Well, Paul doesn't say. So we have to figure it out. But there are a couple of possibilities. One, it could be that he's saying, as you pray, be watchful of yourself. In other words, be aware of your own heart. Are you guarding your heart? Is there hidden sin in your life? Is there something that you're thinking, some grudge that you're holding? Are you out of fellowship with somebody else? Is there anything in your life that could act as a barrier between you and a constant faithful relationship with the Lord, where your prayers could end up be hindered? You remember a couple, three weeks ago when we were speaking to the husbands, there's a passage in 1 Peter 3 where the apostle Peter tells the Christian husbands of the congregation, husbands, treat your wives reverently, Respectfully. And don't be harsh with them so that your prayers be not hindered. See, there are certain things about our life that can disrupt our fellowship with God. So, one of the things that a, a disciple is careful to do is to maintain this watchfulness over his or her own heart. Guard your heart, guard your spirit. Make sure that when you approach God, you approach God with clean hands and purity. Of heart, Stay sharp in the word, stay alert, stay informed, know the situation around you, know the things that you should be praying for, and take those things and those requests to God. So that's one thing that Paul could mean, and it's certainly a true thing, when he says, as you pray, be watchful. But then being watchful could also mean, as you watch for yourself, how about watch up, because Jesus might come tomorrow, amen. Be watchful, for the time is short. Man, this is a theme that Paul emphasizes all throughout his writings. So I don't think there's any question that there's an end times kind of approach when Paul says, be watchful. In fact, being watchful for the coming of Christ ought to motivate you and me to be watchful over our own heart and our own spirit. Because I don't know about you, I want to be found faithful when Jesus comes again. I don't want to be found doing something stupid, amen? When Jesus comes again, the last thing I want to be found as doing something that causes me to look more like the enemy than like my risen Savior. So when I live in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to act as a constraining mechanism on my own heart and life on the decisions that I make. So we ought to live in such a way that we're constantly looking ahead. Could today be the day that Jesus Christ comes again? I don't think you have to choose between those two concepts about being watchful. I think they both go hand in glove with one another because to live watchfully for the return of Jesus Christ means to live watchfully in terms of your own heart and life. And when you do, I'm telling you what, you'll be driven to pray. And when you do, pray with this kind of steadfastness and this kind of watchfulness, you know what? It communicates not only to others but to God that you really do believe that God's on the throne and you really believe that you're not, amen. See, when you don't pray, you're making a statement, you're on your own throne of life. You're not dependent on God. You're independent of God when you choose to live a prayerless existence. And so Paul says, first of all, Pray earnestly, be steadfast, be watchful. Then, secondly, Paul teaches us to pray gratefully. With what? Thanksgiving. Right. And that's something that Paul returns to time and time again, not only here in Colossians, and he does, five times in the letter of Colossians, he uses words uh, to the effect be thankful or live <clears throat> thankfully. So he says, first of all, pray watchfully, and then he says, pray gratefully and this is something that ought to mark every believer's life it's a theme that we find all over the letters of the apostle paul philippians 4 6 for example very familiar memory verse be anxious for nothing be anxious about do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with what with thanksgiving let your request be made known to god and there are lots of things that we can be thankful for In fact, you can be thankful for just about anything that you ascribe coming to your life as a gift from God, which ought to be just about every good thing in your life because the Bible says that, doesn't it? Every good and perfect gift comes from where? From above. That's right. So every good and wholesome and beautiful and perfect thing in your life that you esteem as valuable comes to you as a grace gift from God. So we learn to be thankful in all things. Pray without ceasing. But Paul also says there in 1 Thessalonians 5, in everything what? Give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. But based on everything that we've studied in Colossians, given the fact that this is a book that's the most Christ-centered book maybe in all of the New Testament, when Paul says to be thankful, you know what I really think he has in mind first and foremost? Be thankful for Jesus. Somebody say amen. That's the most important gift we've ever been given is the gift of God's Son. And he's just blown a horn for Jesus from the very beginning of Colossians chapter one. Everything that he said has focused us on Christ alone as the primary focus and emphasis and reason for our life. He's talking about this Christ who is God the Son, this Christ who is Lord of creation, this Christ who is sustainer, of the universe. This Jesus who is head of the church. This Christ who lives within us by faith and thus becomes our hope of glory. This Christ who has forgiven us all our sins and freed us from all the bondage of the law. This Christ who has taken us in our deadness to sin and raised us up to live eternally with him and to walk with him this side of heaven in holiness and peace. This Jesus who has gone on before us, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us, who one day will come again and take everything that's wrong about this life and set it eternally back to the right. When you think about life, you think about Jesus and everything that he's done for you, and you can't help but be thankful when it comes time to approach God in prayer. This is what Paul means when he encourages us. Knowing all of that, how in the world can we not live and pray with thanksgiving and rejoicing. Martin Lloyd-Jones, another great British pastor, calls this the first great characteristic of the genuine Christian. If you're not thankful for all God has done for you, you probably have never been born again, and you need to be saved. Because when God transforms your heart, I'm telling you, there's no way you can't live with an attitude of gratitude. Sure, we fall back into the slough of despond. Yeah, we get discouraged. Yeah, the clouds roll in sometimes and times get dark and we wonder where in the world God is. But then when you're walking in the Lord and consistently praying, even in the dark times, you'll be reminded God's still on his throne. Greater is he who's in me than he who is in the world. And Jesus is coming again and I can make it. I can make it through anything. The devil throws at me in life. And then finally, Paul encourages the church to pray specifically. Specifically. He moves from prayer in general to what we might call intercessory prayer, that the church would pray for him. Did you catch that? And pray for us as well. He's probably including Timothy, who we know is with him, who's kind of listed as with Paul at the beginning of this letter, Paul and Timothy to the faithful in Colossae. And so he's asking for prayer for Timothy and maybe others who are there with him as he's under house arrest in Rome. He needs their prayers. Verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. And you know what's ironic about that statement is that Paul's in prison because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. That's why they threw him behind bars. He wouldn't shut up about Jesus. And as he's behind bars, he's asking the church to pray that he would be given avenues even from within the dungeon of a prison cell to keep preaching the very gospel that got him thrown in jail in the first place. And what a way to pray. What bold, courageous prayer. See, I think it's very telling what he doesn't ask them to pray for. If the church had written me a letter saying, hey, Pastor Jim, we're praying for you. What can we pray for you as you're spending time in the the, uh, Escambia County Jail? I'd write you back and I'd say, pray that God would get me out of this place. I want to go home. I've had it. He does not pray for the Lord to open the prison bars. He prays for God's will to be done. And if God wants to release me, God will release me. If God wants me here, then just pray that open doors would find their way here. That I would have an avenue to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to keep preaching the word. Because as he wrote to the Corinthians, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. I got to tell somebody about the Lord. So he wants open doors for effective witness. And we know from the biblical record that God gave it to him. God afforded him, you can read this at the end of the book of Acts, God afforded him the opportunity. They, they, they gave him liberty. He was under arrest, but he had great liberty. People were free to come, visit him. And uh, those who were ministering with him were free to leave and to go around Rome. And so those open doors certainly came to him. But what's important here is just to learn how to pray like that. How to pray specifically. Most of us, when we pray, we're so in a hurry. We really don't have time to be really specific with God. So we just kind of do this general whitewashing of prayer. And so we pray things like, Lord, would you bless the missionaries that are serving us around the world? There's a better way to pray than that. Instead of praying, bless the missionaries, how about pick out one, two, or three that you know by name? And if you don't know any by name, we can give you some. And just pray for them. That pray that God would give them open doors and that God would bless them and meet their needs and provide for them. So many times we go, "Oh God, would you bless our church?" There's a better way to pray. Lord, would you bless our church in such a way that 2020 is the greatest soul-winning harvest time in the history of Hillcrest Church? Lord, would you bless our staff and would you bless our leaders that they would find joy in the ministry? that it would never be a burden. Father, would you bless our connect group that we would become more evangelistic in this year and have the opportunity to bring new people into our little community within a community. That's specific prayer, and that's a better way to pray. Everybody tracking with me? No, don't just pray for the lost. Lord, would you, would you minister to the lost of Pensacola? There's a better way to pray. Anybody here know any lost people? Personally, don't just pray for the law. Pray for those people that just came to your mind. Call them by name. Doesn't even have to be many. Pick out one, two, or three. In fact, starting Wednesday night and throughout the rest of January, you're all going to be hearing a lot about who's your one. We're going to be just asking you to start the year. Think of one. One person that you can pray for every day, multiple times a day, that you know is lost, and that you can ask God, Lord, Help me to be an influence in this person's life. Open up doors where I can have conversations with them. Not just about college football. Not just about golf. Not just about fishing. Maybe you can talk about those things as an inroad to remind them that those things are fun, but one of these days life's going to come to a conclusion, and then what's going to happen? Have you ever thought about that? And are you ready for what's next? Because I used to not think about it that much. Until one day somebody confronted me with me. But now I'm telling you what. I'm ready for whatever happens in this life. I mean just having conversations with people like that. I'm going to ask you to think about one. Then we're going to record those names. We're going to put them down on paper. We're going to post them. First names. And we're going to see how many people our church is praying for. In the month of January. And then we're going to see how many people God leads to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because God's people care enough about them to pray for them, to pray specifically that they would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So this is part of the reason why we're coming together on Wednesday night. I surely invite you to come because you'll hear more about who's your one and as we pray and, and talk about it and, and pray that the Lord would do great things in our midst We'll make sure that you're well-informed to know what we're here to be about as we start this all-important new decade of life and ministry together. Now, as we move along, because time is short this morning, Paul's going to take that passion for sharing the gospel, and he's going to give the Colossians a second directive. In our relationship with God, Paul says, we must walk in prayer But also, we have a relationship with the world. And in our relationship with the world, we have to walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. Now, once again, we're right back uh, where we started from Colossians chapter 1, because in that prayer that Paul prays for the Colossians right out of the gate in the first chapter of Colossians, one of the things that he prays for, you'll remember, is what? Wisdom. Spiritual wisdom and understanding. And here Paul concludes the letter with exactly the same theme. It's in verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Now, what is your walk? Well, your walk is your manner of life. It's how you live, your course of living. And when it comes to the manner of your life, the course of your life, we're instructed to live wisely with a view as to how our Christian walk affects people who are outside of the Christian camp. And there are far more people outside the walls of Hillcrest than will be inside the walls of Hillcrest this morning. So when we walk in wisdom toward outsiders, we're walking in wisdom toward the great majority of people in our very community. And we need to keep in mind that how we live and how we walk is supposed to have an effect on those people, the spiritually lost Now, as he does with prayer, Paul gives us three critical dimensions concerning our relationship toward unbelievers in the larger world around us. First, he says we need to be intentional with others. Be intentional with them. Paul says in verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Most of us probably would say that we're not real good time managers. In fact, probably most people, the great majority of people, are terrible time managers. We fritter away so much time, wasting so much time on worthless pursuits, man. Things that don't amount to a hill of beans, too much iPhone. That's a sermon in and of itself. Hours a day. Pop in the phone. Too much Netflix. Binge watching. Watching one program right after another, right after another. I don't know what the current figure is. It used to be the average American watched between four and five hours of television every day. That's just terrible time management. I can't read a book. In a year, well, get quit watching TV. You could read, read, could read twenty books a year. Too much athletics, too much ESPN. I mean, we got all kinds of time. Truth be told, and I've said it many times: you got time to do exactly what you want to do. You got time to do what you want to do. And Paul says, instead of wasting time. Be wise with the time. Make the best use of time. You know what that says literally? Redeem the time. The word redeem means what? Buy back or to buy up. That's what Paul says. Buy up the time. In other words, buy up the time God gives you. And then as you buy it up, determine to use it for the glory of God, especially when it comes to relationships with people who are on the broad road that leads to destruction, that broad road that most people are on that leads to a hellish eternity. Jesus said in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. For night is coming when no man can work. Redeem the time, the Bible says in Ephesians 5, for the days are what? Evil And the time is short. So pray for God to give you open doors. Pray like Paul. God, give me open doors, open windows. Give me lots of opportunity to have gospel conversations with people so that whenever you do come, I'll be found faithful. Be intentional with your time. Be intentional with the lost. Second, we're encouraged by Paul's own prayer request back up in verse 3 to be clear with others. Can I just say this morning, if you pray for open doors, God will give them to you. He'll give you more than you think you've got time to deal with. You pray for open doors for God to bring people who are lost across your path, God will bring them because they're out there by the myriads. Most people you work with do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, probably including those who think they do. Cultural Christians who've never really established a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. They've established a relationship with the church, but you can establish a relationship with the church and then die and go straight to hell. Church never saved anybody, only Jesus saves. And so you've got all kinds of open doors. And then when God gives them to you, and He will. <clears throat> The second thing to pray for is, Lord, help me just be clear. Give me the right words. It's what Paul's request is. Pray for us also. And this is the greatest preacher since Jesus Christ. Praying that God would give him wisdom in terms of his words. That I may make the gospel clear, which is how I ought to speak. Man, if I had time, I could tell you 150 stories about muddled communication. Anybody ever been on the receiving end of some bad communication? Not long after I became pastor of this church, one of our other pastors says, we got a really sick guy. I mean, this was way back in 2005. We got a really sick guy, and really it would be good if you went to see him. And he gave me the guy's name. I went to see the guy called him by name because I wanted him to know that I knew his name only to find out later that the other pastor had given me the wrong name and I called him the wrong name through the whole visit. And bless that sweet man's heart, he never corrected me one time. He was just thankful that I was there. Young executive one time working in the communications department of a major corporation was assigned the project of writing a press release. First time he'd ever written his own press release for the company. And he handed it to his crusty old boss who'd been there for decades. And one of his lines read like this, The company's consumer-centric business model provides a strong value proposition to consumers. And the boss who'd been around the block struck a line through it and wrote these words, customers love our company's low prices and great service. Now, which of those two better communicates? And that's what we want to pray for, simplicity. Some people overcomplicate the gospel. Man, when you're sharing with outsiders, make the message plain, as the old hymn says. Make the message plain clear. Make it so that sheep can reach it. Don't set it so high that you have to be a giraffe to find it. Make the message clear so that people not only hear it, but that they can understand it. I was right outside in the worship center lobby between the two Christmas Eve services here at Hillcrest. It was a madhouse back there. That first service we had was packed Shoulder to shoulder, people were setting. Most of them were leaving through the very back. And then they would stop and have their picture made by, I mean, it was just crazy, picture made by the Christmas tree. And I'm out there just pressing flesh and touching people. And a young lady, probably about 30 years old, couple of kids in tow, came up to me. And she said, you don't know me. I live in Birmingham, but my family lives here, I've gone to this church for years. And I, I, just need, I, I just need to tell you that when I was here last Christmas at the Christmas Eve service, You presented the gospel at the end of your message right before we took communion, which I do every year. And she said, there's never been a time in my entire life that I've not been in church. But that night, when you shared the gospel, I recognized that I had never trusted Jesus to forgive my sins. I realized for the first time in my entire life that I was living on the faith of my mother and my father that it was their faith, that I didn't have any faith of my own. And right there in the middle of the Christmas Eve service, I trusted Jesus to save me. And I knew that Jesus died on the cross for me to forgive my sin. And I trusted him To do that, and I've waited a whole year, she said. I've waited a whole year to be able to find you and come to you and to tell you thank you for sharing the gospel in a way that I understood for the first time in my life because now she was a child of God. Isn't that great? Are you prepared to share the gospel simply with the people that you know that are lost over the next? few weeks in our church in connect groups all of y'all are going to be learning a little method of sharing the gospel called three circles now some of you may have been using the four spiritual laws or another method you say well I don't have a method well I like my method better than yours all right you need to have some concise way of being able to share the gospel If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have a story, and that's great. You can incorporate your story. But here's the thing. Are you all still with me? Say amen. Your story isn't going to save anybody. Only the gospel saves people. And so this thing we call witnessing is not about sharing your story. That can be a part of it. It's about sharing the gospel of Christ. Can you do that simply and clearly? If you can't, part of that's on us. And we don't want that burden, so we're going to give you a simple way to do it. And we're going to teach it all throughout Connect Groups, all throughout January. Just a simple way to synthesize God's purpose for every human life. Use whatever you want to. This is just one. If you've got a better plan, works better for you, then use it. But you better have a plan as you pray because the gospel is what changes lives. Can you share it simply and clearly with others? And then finally, Paul would say, as you're being intentional and as you're being clear, be engaging with others. That's part of walking in wisdom toward outsiders. To live in such a way that's winsome and engaging and not alienating. Paul wants our witness to be not only clear, but notice what he says in verse 6. Let your speech always be what? Gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, I'll be honest, and you know as well as I do, there's a lot of Christian witnesses just downright abusive and insulting and offensive I know some people that alienate when they share the gospel with others. So what they take this phrase, seasoned with salt, to mean the equivalent of pouring salt in a wound. I believe sharing the gospel ought to be painful, right? No! Now the gospel is going to cut, right? The gospel pierces. But you leave the piercing to the Holy Spirit. Can I have an amen? Amen. Let the Holy Spirit do the piercing with the message of the gospel. He doesn't need your help to beat people up. And the Holy Spirit's not going to beat people up, but he is going to confront people with the reality that apart from Jesus Christ, we're lost, we're sinners. That's why Christ came. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am. And that cuts. But you can share the message of the gospel in a way that's not offensive And abrasive. Jesus said we are the salt of the earth. But the the point Paul's making here is that our speech, uh, not that our speech should sting, but that our speech should season, which is another function of salt. Salt makes food taste good. Amen. Some of y'all need to lay off the salt, all right? Doctors are in the house this morning. Cut back a little bit, but don't do away with it entirely because food needs to be flavorful, right? And God designs the gospel to be flavorful, and as you and I present it, we need to season it up and to spice it in terms of how we share it. Winsomely, attractively. Paul says, he uses the word gracious. Let your speech always be what? Say it out loud. Gracious. All with the purpose. See, the point is as you live in the grace of God, as the grace of God flows through you, as you minister to outsiders, gracious words ought to flow from you. Be gracious. All with the purpose of addressing and answering the questions and the objections of your lost family, your lost friends, your lost colleagues. 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with what? Gentleness and respect. Don't you think it's a bit ironic that the greatest fears of most Christian disciples are the fear of praying together? And the fear of sharing the gospel with others. Most Christians are more fearful of those two things. I want everybody looking at your pastor. Everybody with me? Say amen. Amen. We got to get over that. These two things are not options for Christian disciples. These are things we must do. We must be intentional in terms of our communication with God, and we must be intentional and wise in our communication with others. This, brothers and sisters, is critical. If God is to give us open doors to fulfill our calling and our purpose, to go And make disciples of all nations to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. To then teach them to observe everything that he has commanded us. This is the motive of our walk with Jesus Christ. God give us open doors to share the gospel that lost outsiders may come to everlasting faith in Jesus Christ. May it be so. This year, more than ever before, for the glory of God, in Jesus' name. This is God's word, and let all who agree say amen this morning.